All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of the Twimmel AI podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington, and today I'm joined by Fatih Purikli, Senior Director of Artificial Intelligence at Qualcomm. Before we get into today's conversation, be sure to take a moment to head over to Apple Podcasts or your listening platform of choice. And if you enjoy the show, we'd greatly appreciate your five-star rating and review. Fatih, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for hearing me, Sam. This is a pleasure. I'm very excited. I'm all yours. Alrighty, I'm really looking forward to digging into our conversation. We'll be talking a lot about your research in the areas of computer vision and perception. But before we do that, I'd love to have you share a little bit about your background and how you came to work in the field. Yeah, thank you. I am a computer scientist and electrical engineer. I was on the both sides of the fence, the fence dividing academia and industry several times. You know, as everyone, I started my PhD. I did some research. I was a research assistant. I stayed at the university. Then I moved to industry. Many years after that, uh, working on real problems, very challenging problems, maybe 13 years after that, I switched back to academia again. I was a full professor, tenured professor for a long time. And then I found myself uh, intentionally, of course, uh, in industry again, (laughs) even uh, trying to solve bigger problems, trying to create bigger impact for everyone. So now I'm with uh, Qualcomm. And the whole time, have you been working on computer vision or have you switched areas of interest? Computer vision was always uh, there. That is one of the things uh, really excites me, amazes me, because if we consider human brain electrical activity, maybe 70, 75% of what we actually consume in our uh, brain, uh, dedicated to visual perception, a significant portion of brain is also goes to visual understanding. So vision is the way that we understand, make sense of the world, life, everything around us. Actually, if we close uh, our eyes, you know, I just close, uh, loss of vision might be the most devastating disability. It comes so naturally to us, the way that we understand the 3D scene, recognize people, recognize faces, recognize objects. So I was always interested in how we can make computers, machines to have that capability as well, this visual understanding, visual perception. So computer vision has been always there. Before maybe, let's say, 25, 30 years ago, it was more conventional, engineered solutions. You think about, okay, what would the human perception do? How would brain work? And how I'm going to sit down and write some mathematical description to convert it to something a computer would understand. Now we are kind of, as you, as many of us are very familiar, we are using AI, uh, artificial intelligence, to make it uh, natural, uh, look into data and uh, learn something automatically from observing the environment around us. Awesome, awesome. Can you share a little bit more around your areas of interest from a research perspective? Absolutely. It's perception. Under perception, there are several modalities. Uh, One is uh, working with uh, image and video data. This would be directly related to computer vision. And then there is 3D 
data point cloud and 3D representations. That's also, I will say, that computer vision as well. But perception is not only in these two model T's, 3D point cloud and image video visual data. There is also RF radio frequency signals all around us, and they are in a way, kind of the lights that we see, they are all around us uh, filling the space. We also look into those invisible frequencies and try to understand everything about the scene, about the world, about uh, how everything works, objects, interacts. So these are the modalities that I am very much interested in. It. What do we do with these modalities? For instance, in images and videos and 3D point cloud data, RF signals, any signal actually, including X-ray and you know ultrasound, uh, we detect things. For instance, whether there is a vehicle or a person on the street, we reconstruct 3D model of the world around us. Uh, that's also very interesting, very challenging actually, if you want to just use one single image, not two, like we do. We have two left and right eyes, so we use stereoscopic vision, but can you do it just using a single camera image? And the answer is yes, for a while, you know, I was really impressed with that one and recognizing activities, labeling everything in the scene. In a way that what goes on the lower level in our brain, we want to do all of these, accomplish all of kind of those processes, uh, perception, and all of them were very interesting to me personally. And this tasks, this understanding goes into many applications from, let's say, XR, augmented reality and virtual reality, to autonomous vehicles, to robotics, IoT, you can imagine. Wherever there, there is a human being, and if you replace or put a machine in front of it, kind of uh, those applications exist all around us, and uh, computer vision enables all of those, and that's why I think it's very exciting to me. <laughs> and some of these problems are big problems, Sam. Mm -hmm. They are not solved problems. They are presenting a big challenge. So that's another attractiveness uh, for many people. So I want to dig into a few of the perception-related papers that you've got at CVPR this year. And the first of the ones is a paper on panoptic segmentation. The full title is Panoptic Instance and Semantic Relations, a Relational Context Encoder to Enhance Panoptic Segmentation. Let's start at the beginning. What is panoptic segmentation? Yeah, it's a long title, Sam. <laughs> panoptic segmentation. So there are things and stuff around us, right? Things are the countable things, like there is one vehicle, another vehicle, another vehicle, one glass, another glass, one person, another person. But there are also uncountable things like sky, like building, like road is not countable, right? So segmentation, the goal of segmentation, take this visual information, images and video or point cloud, and then label every pixel, every region with the identity of that region. For instance, if it's a sky, if we see sky, it will tell, computer will tell that, okay, this is a sky pixel, that specific pixel and the region. If there is a person, it will tell, this is person, but it's not gonna just say person. It's gonna say that this is person A mm -hmm. and another person B, even though they are occluded each other, maybe half of the person B is visible, it will still distinguish. So this is a very challenging task. We are trying to label all data pixels, in this case, with this corresponding 
things and stuff identities. That is what panoptic segmentation does. And so in that sense, it is kind of a superset of instance segmentation, which is identifying the things and semantic segmentation, which is more focused on the stuff. Very good. Absolutely. Yes, actually, that's the right technical description. Instance segmentation and semantic segmentation together will give, would be under the panoptic segmentation. Mm -hmm. And so kind of describe the setting for this paper. What is the problem that you set out to solve? So now we understand what panoptic segmentation is. And as maybe I should point out that recently there has been significant attention and excitement around a new technology in AI, which is called as uh, transformers. Mm -hmm. So what transformer is, let me very briefly mention that when we give an image, data, video, algorithm learns which parts of, for instance, image are related to each other. And it knows to collect such supportive information, pay right attention to the right parts. For instance, if there is a vehicle part, a tire will put more confidence if let's say we want to detect a vehicle to, uh, with the hood of the vehicle, door of the vehicle, but road pixels, sky pixel, they will, even though they may look similar, attention mechanism will ignore those. So it will focus on the better part supportive evidence to make such deductions. So transformer is self-attention, advanced self-attention mechanism. It is important to relate these areas, image areas, and it has been applied to semantic segmentation before. Now, uh, the challenging part for panoptic segmentation, there are you no know, unknown random number of things like these instances of the other classes like people and vehicles in the scene. How are we going to use transformers to make sure that this instance of, uh, let's say, this person kind of is different this transformer mechanism will distinguish from the other person. Otherwise, uh, since they are, they look same, they will, regular transformer will think that oh, they are same thing and it may not uh, distinguish these two. For panoptic segmentation, we want to label them separately. So this paper explains first time in the world how you can actually kind of combine this type of attention mechanism into a segmentation framework. Got it. And so what have prior approaches tried to do for solving panoptic segmentation? Right. Prior approaches on a high level, we can consider there are single shot or multi-shot settings. Single shot setting, it aims to take an input image and directly label each pixel as a different object, instance of an object like this person and the other person. There are multi-shot algorithms, multi-shot meaning first we find these regions of interest. You can think that those are like boxes. You say, okay, this is like a box. There's a person here, another person here, another person here. Mm -hmm. Then in the second stage, we go and look, okay, this box contains a single instance of a person and it doesn't overlap with anything. Okay, good. Then I will just go, you know, do segmentation within this box and I will find segment out to person. If there is overlap, then I will uh, kind of infer which one, which pixel is belongs to which 
person. There are two or multiple persons. So this is the other way of doing that. Uh, usually these algorithms lack an attention mechanism across different instances. We can do it pixel-wise, but if I have one person here, another person behind it, another person far away, how I'm going to learn where to focus if I want to detect all of them at the same time? So this is what we accomplish uh, for a different number, varying number of instances. Uh, CVPR paper shows that you can uh, learn or train an algorithm that would learn uh, to focus on the right areas of the image, which then improves the accuracy of the segmentation. That's what we show in the paper. Got it. Got it. Uh, I think this is maybe related to the single shot versus multi-shot, but I got the impression from the paper that one of the big things that you're doing differently here is that previous attempts have tried to, hey, in order to solve panoptic segmentation, let's do image segmentation or instance segmentation and then semantic se segmentation separately and kind of put the results together whereas you're doing them as part of a consistent, a coherent system. Is that a fair? Absolutely. Very good point. Now, uh, the same network can do in an end-to-end -end fashion these two tasks together. And when you do it together in an end-to-end -end fashion in the same network, they support each other. They don't kind of dismiss what, for instance, semantic segmentation would generate or instant segmentation would generate. They leverage the kind of uh, together and uh, which generates better improved numbers, honestly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What were some of the biggest challenges to this approach? Transformer architecture or self-attention architecture. Uh, one challenge I can say that uh, they are computationally intensive and how to make them efficient was a challenge. And also, our paper is not specific to any specific backbone. A backbone usually considered as a pre-processing neural network takes image or video and then creates useful features for the downstream tasks like uh, semantic, panoptic, or instance segmentation or many other tasks. So our algorithm, our idea actually, can apply to any backbone, any kind of a segmentation framework it could be plugged in to improve their performance. In the paper, we tried maybe more than 15, 20 uh, different segmentation algorithms. And every time we plugged in this type of transformer-based uh, instance self-attention with the kind of semantic attention, the uh, results were much better. How do you have both the ability to plug in whatever segmentation model you want to use. The, was that specifically for the instant segmentation or for either of the components? What our algorithm does, it uh, leverages the these features coming from the previous segmentation algorithm, and then it takes them and it learns reweighting them. In a way, that's what transformer does. The input to transformer is some kind of, let's simplify it, let's say, it is an image. Output is another image, let's say. What you see, like, uh, maybe now much clearer and focus on the right parts. Uh, maybe input image, you can think that it's a noisy image and there are some, you know, kind of like 
things not very visible in the output now much sharper and uh, kind of these things are clearly distinguishable of course it is not an image but goes into this uh, network it is a set of feature vectors and it's called as the features uh, for image each pixel has a feature descriptor those de descriptors goes into this component and comes in a better more trustable kind of more useful manner you know when we do that when we make the features better any downstream task will benefit from that so all these segmentation algorithms they have this type of feature generators either at the beginning or at the end so this idea can plug kind of uh, and directly apply to those feature maps Got it, got it. So the core of what you've done is this transformer that takes as input these feature vectors, and you don't really care how the feature vectors are created. Any of these algorithms that you've tried, it worked just fine as part of your network. Yes, this is the strength of it. It can take any of the features and make them better, you know, more representative of the task that we want to accomplish. Mm -hmm. However, this is also something novel in the paper. Then we use this thing and we also go back to the previous stages like feature generator and uh, other branches to make them even more accurate. So kind of uh, when we do end-to-end -end training using uh, PISR, the paper, the idea that we talk about in the paper, all network becomes kind of updated and even the previous part, feature generation part improves. So overall, kind of that uh, further improves the accuracy. Panoptic segmentation is one of the most challenging tests in computer vision. It's very difficult for a human to segment. By the way, if you want to do, if I, if you ask me to go, you know, label each instance, I will do something, but if you ask another person, it will do differently. You know, even for humans, there is significant variation in the outputs of how we, you know, do panoptic segmentation, instance and semantic segmentation. For a computer vision algorithm, for a machine to do it, even more challenging. So this type of ideas really kind of pushes the state of the art such that, you know, they are becoming more and more feasible for bigger use cases to improve our daily lives through these applications in XR and auto and other type of uh, use cases. Okay. Uh, how did you measure the performance of your model? There are well uh, studied and recognized metrics and there are benchmark data sets. So we huge benchmark data sets. Uh, those benchmark data sets have the ground truth information uh, one way or another defined. These are real also data sets, real images, real videos. We use those metrics, for instance, uh, mean IOU or similar metrics. Uh, it defines how well one uh, mask, object mask, overlaps with another one. So this is very common in semantic segmentation for instance segmentation, there are similar, you know, advanced versions of this thing now, considering uh, whether uh, kind of we are confusing identity of the instances or not. So there are these common metrics and benchmarks uh, that uh, that's how we evaluate the algorithm. And what kind of results did you see? When we submitted the paper, we look at all the existing state-of-the-art, existing work, including the archive, 
things uh, appeared on the archive, not maybe published, but very fresh things. So just before the submission deadline, the previous week, we applied whatever we found. And uh, every time uh, we observed improvement on these uh, segmentation pipelines, And uh, our results also, when we submitted to different or investigated, you know, re- generated results on these benchmarks, were the top of the line. In the paper, we show that those are the best segmentation results possible. Of course, the field is changing. Maybe next CVPR, uh, there might be even better numbers that might be coming from us or other people. But at that time, it was the number one on multiple data sets also, not one data set. Okay. And where do you see this particular line of research heading? Is it a saw is, is panoptic segmentation a solved problem now? I think when the conditions are right, it is its performance is, you know, almost product quality level, but there is significant variation in the input quality. For instance, it could be a dark image, it could be a very noisy image, it could be a blurred image. Mhm. That you can imagine, you know, th- there might be many problems in the image. Things may be very small. Some of the objects might be very tiny and not maybe only, let's say, a hand of a person would be visible, significantly occluded. And we, our goal is actually detect that hand as well, you know, kind of, uh, mm. even though only it's the hand. So those type of very difficult uh, settings still require more work to make the algorithm to be more robust, generalize those type of uh, challenging situations. And also uh, another thing, if, for instance, we use a data set and that data set collected in a, a specific manner using maybe the similar type of cameras and labeling might be similar and the lighting might be similar, but now in a specific application, the environment, lighting, everything would be different. How to adapt to that such domain changes, domain variations is one thing. Another thing, Sam, I mean, we don't, these things, instances could be any class, right? I maybe repeated many times, like it could be a person, it could be a vehicle, but it could be anything, right? It could be yeah, a piece of machinery. It could be a kind of component in an assembly line. You can imagine, you know, it could be a bird, multiple birds, you know, for Kind of, you can imagine this is like a commodity, this type of AI solution. People would like to take it and count the number of ants, you know, in a lab setting, those type of things. So how to adapt automatically with minimal labeling to such different classes, different type of things, different type of stuff uh, for semantic and instant segmentation? It is, I think, still a challenge. And we are working on all of those problems, which would, for instance, take our solution and automatically adapt to a very different, completely different, you know, class, uh, set of classes, different type of objects. So there is still work to be done, but the quality of the segmentation results for key applications, for instance, camera essentials, for autonomous vehicles, for XR applications, for robotics, I think uh, it's very promising. And soon such solutions, either from us or maybe, you know, everyone, anyone in the world uh, using our solutions will appear in products. I'm very confident about it. Awesome. Does this approach assume prior knowledge of the classes? 
I was envisioning this like an autonomous vehicle type of scenario where you, you know, you have a camera off of a picture of a road, a camera off of the front of the vehicle, and there's something in the road and you're trying to differentiate not something in the road versus something in the road. But that's a different problem than what we're talking about here. Oh, that's maybe obstacle detection or, you know, uh, we have a class of unrecognizable things as well. And there are ways to solve it. Uh, yes, that is also possible. But if it's supervised solution, if the target crisis changes, it's a problem. You have to do this transfer learning. There is a specific term for that. Mm-hmm. My goal, target crisis now change. How I'm going to leverage on the previous network that I trained and maybe some portion of the previous data, anything semantically related, semantic information, and now I can adapt to this type of things. To detect things are not even be defined. Usually it is, there, there is a class of unidentified things. We don't know what they are. Like these are unidentified object classes, UFO, like you or see something, you know, we can give it a name. But then maybe some other intelligent mechanism has to decide, or is it something that I should worry about it? If I'm approaching that thing, is it going to be a problem for us or not? We are, of course, that's a more higher level inference. There are ways of doing that. Supervised learning, of course, limited. Now at Qualcomm also, we are looking at self-supervised solutions or unsupervised solutions exactly for, this is one of the reasons. We cannot expect people to generate these data labels, ground truth, to train these algorithms over and over again. And human beings, we don't learn that way, right? I mean, it's not like here's an example of a cat, example of a dog, example of a you know tiger, And then we remember that we know when we see an animal kind of that is an animal, you know, it is not like I don't need a training data. Even if I don't see it, I will infer, you know, I will deduce that. Okay, it looks like a tiger. So it might be some type of tiger. So uh, we do it uh, using this continual uh, self and unsupervised learning. And we we are we have solutions actually kind of uh, applied to different tasks. In this paper, we don't uh, really talk about that, but that is something we are very active on it as well. Got it. Got it. Another paper that we wanted to chat about was the imposing consistency for optical flow estimation paper. Tell us about the, the problem that you're trying to solve there. Yeah, absolutely. So optical flow is finding where each pixel in the current image was in the previous image. So in a way, it is motion. It describes pixel-wise motion. Why this is important? Because if I know where the pixel was in the previous frame, then first of all, I know how things are moving in the scene. I can deduce about the camera motion, and then I can also understand object motion. For instance, we have a headset, XR headset, and or AR glass, uh, we are moving our heads and this is moves, but then some other people also move. So this type of motion, which is important. And also I can relate the previous frame to when I compute or make deduction for the current frame. So motion is important and optical flow is what you would uh, obtain if you correspond this pixel with its previous location in the previous frame. 
So it looks like a field, you know, lots of motion vectors. So kind of like motion vector from individual pixels to the next, to where that pixel ends up in the next frame? Of course, yeah. It could be from current frame to the previous frame or previous frame to the current frame or current to the future frame. We can predict also, absolutely, Sam. Got it. And so what's the approach that you took with this paper? Right. So one challenge, again, in AI, in data-driven learning, the data set. What I mentioned before, we need ground truth data for supervised training. Here is, let's say, two images, like the current frame and the previous frame, video frames. And this is the optical flow, motion between them. We can, you know, if we synthesize those images, we can we know we control everything. We might have a game engine, for instance, or any software can generate this type of different. We can, for instance, move the image, things in the image uh, in a game, and we know how they moved. That type of ground truth is available. But if we have real images, you know, how we are going to find the ground truth? Like how each pixel is moved is not like something measurable. You can think that- It's a much harder labeling problem than what we just talked about, which was already hard. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. So such data sets, I mean, still computed data sets. There are some data sets, smaller scale. And in AI, we want big data sets, you know, huge data sets with tens of thousands of samples. It doesn't exist. So if we don't have the data set, we will not have a good model so in this paper, what we show that, you know, you do not need such a big data set. We will do self-supervised learning, unsupervised learning. We will, for instance, take the previous image and we will do some transformations on it. We will rotate it, we will warp it, and we will apply lots of different degradations, you know, without really destroying the image. Still, you know, it's like similar scene. And when we look at it, it would maybe look a little bit noisier or less noisier or the color is different, but maybe it's also warped. So we do all type, this type of transformations and we know because we applied those, we defined those transformations. So we know the ground truth in that way. So what about leveraging on that thing? And if we do that kind of optical flow should be consistent with the way that we warped, transformed the image. That's one thing. Uh, we also look, uh, okay, if I do forward, if I go backward, what would happen? Also, when, let's say, there's my hand is moving, right, in front of uh, uh, my face, mm -hmm. and uh, when it moves, either it occludes some parts or reveals some other part. And that's important. If I have two frames, it's not like every pixel is going to be visible in both images, right? This is called as occlusion and occlusion map. We want our network to not handicapped by the occlusion areas. So if we detect such occlusion areas automatically, and if we manage them automatically again in the network, maybe as a separate, you know, channel estimating those occlusion maps, it would, uh, overall, it would benefit during training and in the inference time also explicitly by estimating such occlusion mass. So this paper does all of these things that I mentioned. And, and just to elaborate on what you just said, it sounds like, yeah, I'm not sure there's necessarily a distinction as I think about it here, but you're not necessarily trying to teach the network to predict occlusion or anything like that for its own benefit, but rather you're trying to teach the network to identify when there is occlusion so it doesn't take 
the ground truth that it's creating otherwise. And it knows if that data is going to be bad because you can't relate the one pixel to the next. Absolutely. Occlusion masks are not available. I mean, we synthesize them. This is the self-supervision part. Mm-hmm. And also kind of these transformations, we define them. And it will be, it is a large set of transformations. And then apply all these training improvements, enhancements, novelties to a network, uh, which is one of the state-of-the-art uh, models for optical flow motion computation. It uh, creates these cost volumes and uh, in different scales. And then it starts with uh, a previous optical flow or just random initialized optical flow. And every time it raises itself at these iterations, the optical flow, estimated optical flow becomes more and more refined, more accurate and especially high resolution. So this is what we uh, do when we, for instance, take these ideas training ideas, uh, self-supervised, unsupervised training ideas, and modify the network such that now it can also do occlusion reasoning and kind of train it in this manner with the existing data sets, you know, still simple data set. Even on those uh, data sets, it improves the performance. And there, there is a benchmark. There are multiple benchmarks, actually. One is called as Kitty. The other one is Sintel. In both those benchmarks, Uh, our solution was uh, when we submitted, and later also, you know, kind of because it's an open benchmark, it was uh, ranking on the top of the leaderboard. And if I'm not mistaken, there are more than 200, you know, solutions. Hundreds of them is somehow AI-based, deep learning-based. So that was quite uh, good news. Uh, we weren't uh, expecting, but we were confident this is the right solution to do. And yeah, it went to the top of the leaderboard, this, this solution. Nice, nice. What is the, what's the future direction for this particular approach? Very good question, Sam. This solution, since it requires uh, big cost volumes and iterations, they are computationally expensive and they require a lot of memory because of the cost volumes and because of the iterations they are slow so what we are working on now you know kind of we will have a demo very soon now we show that the same solution could run on a mobile phone on a qualcomm platform in real time for a large input size input image size large video size So this has been quite uh, an excitement for us. We put a lot of effort to make it more efficient. Yeah, this is our current work. And we also want to extend it to other things. You can do this type of things for one camera. And this is one video, right, uh, on the same camera. But you can do optical flow, or which is called a scene flow, across multiple cameras. And you will find 3D motion, not uh, 2D motion. So we are extending to that And optical flow is core for many other perception tasks and higher level understanding. We are now plugging this solution into different pipelines to see how much improvement we would get. Uh, super resolution is one of them, for instance. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Well, there's one more paper that you have at CVPR, and we wanted to make sure to touch on that one as well. The next one is dense vision transformers for single image inverse rendering in indoor scenes. This particular one's focused on inverse rendering. What's that problem? So that's very interesting. Usually when we synthesize 
a scene, we know about 3D, we know about the objects, like there's a couch, there's a chair, there's a ball, and we know the color of those. We also know their properties, reflectance properties. We want to generate a scene, computer graphics. So we know the location of the light. We know many things about the scene, like surface, normals, albedo, roughness, you know, you can imagine. So it would look real time, real life. Mm -hmm. So inverse rendering, so this is rendering, this synthesizing that I mentioned. Inverse rendering starts on the other end. It takes an image, natural image, then it tries to find these components, for instance, the lighting location, lighting direction, lighting intensity, room shape, I mean, for indoors, and the properties of the everything, objects, all the objects in the scene, their shape, their color, their materials, whether it's leather or metal or wood or cloth, those type of things. So inverse rendering takes an image, real image, and kind of finds these components. Each one of them, you can think that is either an image, a reflectance image, a color image, albedo image, or a 3D model, you know, or lighting location, you know, the heat maps and those type of things. This is the inverse rendering pipeline. And this paper uses a transformer-based idea to accomplish that. Got it. Uh, and so how is inverse rendering previously done when you're not using transformers? Again, many algorithms previously, but recently also, I should say, because deep learning-based uh, solutions for inverse rendering are not that old either, maybe at most a couple of years. Uh, but People did, uh, okay, here is the input image and I know 3D model because I generated that input image and now I'm going to uh, switch the order. I will give input image and try to estimate the 3D shape. And I know also the surface normals and I know the color, you know, I know the color of the objects. I know the locations of the objects. I know the reflectivity of the objects. I know the lighting location. So kind of this is done in a supervised manner uh, and separately. I think kind of the keyword here is these type of things done separately and there has not been any attempt to learn for each task and across multiple tasks uh, where to focus when we are doing this type of inverse rendering. If there is an image, if I want to, let's say, generate the lighting location and lighting direction, which part of the scene image provides the right information that has not been done before. Got it. And so this particular approach and using the transformer, again, you reference this idea of the transformer's ability to attend to the right and the most important parts of the image. That's a, a big part of what's making this work. Right. Yes. Transformers does that. In this case, we incorporated uh, such self-attention or cross-attention mechanisms into our work, into inverse rendering to improve the accuracy of each of these uh, inverse rendering tests and also lighting estimation. So when we have that, uh, when we decompose an image into this type of components, then we factorize it, then we can, for instance, put anything in the scene, the lighting location, how it reflects from you know, other objects in the scene, and it would look more realistic, more natural, much more natural. So, And for instance, one application would be, here is an input image, and then we put a completely virtual 
objects in a way that, you know, all the shadows are correct. It's very difficult to distinguish what we inserted, edited in the image than any other things already exist in the image. And we can change the things, you know. I'm so excited about network. That's what I, I forgot, but I should have said it. For instance, we have an image of a real scene, a house, let's say, right. and uh, walls have a specific color, Sam. Now I can change the wall color, or I can change, for instance, there's a couch here. I can make the leather couch to a cloth, some different fabric. So we can really modify the scenes in a very realistic manner. Right, in a way that preserves that realism without it falling apart. And so what were the, I'm imagining challenges here again, you know, with you using transformers or the computational intensity of the approach is one of them? In this case, we didn't focus on computational in kind of uh, intensity. Yes, it's computation very heavy and uh, we plan to kind of uh, make it also very efficient. There's no question about that. But one of the challenges was mm -hmm. lighting direction estimation is not a straightforward problem because uh, it's difficult to take an image and before knowing about the location of the light and also 3D scene structure, deduce about the lighting direction. I mean, you can imagine this lighting, there's a window, there's a sun outside the window. By the way, this window is not visible in the image. It is like right in front of me, there is a window and you don't see it, right? Right. In this test, our goal is to find where that window is and where the sun is, you know, not this direction, but this direction. So this is kind of what we want to do if we want to really put an object in a way that, you know, shadows are correct, ambient lighting is correct. So we are imagining, uh, estimating the um, invisible things in the image. If it's visible, it's much more easier. So we are estimating the remaining part of the scene room, for instance, and that cannot be done using just an input image directly going to there. You need to go step by step, first get an idea about the room layout, 3D scene structure, you know, reflectivity, all type of cues, then leveraging on those with attention mechanism transformers where to believe in the previously computed information. Okay, where is the light now? Invisible lights. What was the direction of the light? What was the properties of light? So that was the challenging part. <laughs> what kind of constraints are you making on the the image? You know, for example, uh, you have a good number of candles behind you. Are you limiting the number of light <laughs> sources that you're assuming to be in the image, for example? It's a good question. We don't actually. That is quite kind of a, not restricted to number of light sources. Type of light sources are maybe shape of the light sources there are some assumptions for windows. There are maybe some additional assumptions. Mm -hmm. It is retained for indoor scenes. Maybe I should mention this is specifically due to the data, data set that we use, Open Rooms data set and ScanNet. It is for indoor, but it could be any number of lights, you know, kind of, uh, yeah. Awesome. Before we wrap up, Qualcomm has a number of other activities at CVPR. Let's briefly have you share a little bit about those. One is a workshop on wireless AI perception. What's that one about? Absolutely. That is the first time a wireless AI perception, wireless itself is becoming workshop at CVPR. CVPR is more visual data 
And, you know, there has been some other modalities as well, but not at a degree of a workshop. And if you look at the field, we see that people are using cameras in addition to together with, let's say, Wi-Fi or 5G or terrorist imaging. So, for instance, there is a Wi-Fi around me right now and there is a camera and together they accomplish more things than just using the camera or the Wi-Fi separately. In this workshop, we bring the leaders in the field. They are going to give us uh, several keynotes, maybe seven, six uh, keynote talks and uh, very exciting presentations, talks about the tools available, data sets available for this type of research. So we bring these um, uh, leaders and uh, create a platform so people can discuss further improvement ideas and share information, share their observations. So that is going to accelerate more research in this area. And when you mentioned Wi-Fi in that context, uh, I know that Qualcomm's done some research around using Wi-Fi signals to determine presence in a room, that kind of thing. Is that the sense in which you're using it or more traditionally as a communication that is one application that we showed we can do it. It is not only sensing the person in the room, but Sam, we actually know when a person moves, where the person is with less than 10 centimeter accuracy, mm-hmm. you know, depending on the number of like the Wi-Fi access points, it could be even better. So we know kind of like, and we can track people in these Wi-Fi or 5G environments, it could be your phone could be tracked, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, using these access points. But in addition to that, we can also estimate the body pose of the people. For instance, we will know that they actually fall down to ground and they need help or not. You know, those are the things that we are trying to accomplish. If there's a camera in the system, it would make even stronger. In this workshop, we are not really uh, presenting our work, but uh, our goal was to accelerate the further research innovation in this area and support everyone, academia and, uh, you know, anyone interested in virus perception. And we will release some data sets as well. Okay, great. Uh, There's also an omnidirectional workshop. What's that one about? Oh, yeah, that's also, so the previous workshop initiated at Qualcomm and kind of several Qualcomm members are in the organizing committee. They are chairing the event. Omnidirectional computer vision workshop is another one. We have the similar setting. It is the third time of the third workshop. And uh, in this edition, there are many people from all around the different companies, autonomous vehicle companies and academia uh, joining this event, showing, presenting ideas for setting where cameras may not be just like our phone cameras, but could be fisheye cameras or 360 cameras. So omnidirectional Mm. kind of indicates, uh, covers cameras with wider, much wider field of view. Of course, those cameras have different geometries and uh, different type of images. If you look at, for instance, maybe uh, people who are holding a stick, Mm -hmm. 360 images, those images look like, not like the pictures we take uh, uh, phones, right? And because of that, the solutions, computer vision solutions kind of has to work in that setting rather than, okay, I'm going to take this funny image and create kind of like regular rectangular version of it. When we do that, we lose information. So there's a reason why 
there are dedicated solutions for uh, omnidirectional cameras and this workshop combines such uh, recent latest state-of-the-art uh, research uh, work and provides a platform pe for people to discuss and uh, you know learn from each other uh, share their experiences one big application is uh, autonomous vehicles as you know autonomous vehicles have multiple cameras anywhere from four five six seven including the internal one external one so you get a 360 feeling perception around the vehicle and how you are going to make sure all this information coming from these different cameras, some of them are LIDAR, uh, fisheye cameras, and there are other sensors can be combined in a way that you know, all the process optimized, works better at a higher accuracy, you know, more uh, robust manner. So these are the things I think people will be discussing. And these are kind of uh, some of the talks in that workshop as well. Awesome. Awesome. And your team also usually is showcasing some number of demos at conferences like CVPR. Do you have any demos this year? Yeah, usually we brought, we try to bring many demos. This time we are only bringing two. There are much more demos at CVPR from Qualcomm. I mean, I'm just talking about uh, kind of my team, uh, Qualcomm AI research perception part. And one of the demos is uh, called as Oxidep. Oxidep. Uh, auxiliary Adaptation for semantic segmentation. The other one is 4K image super resolution. Oh, wow. So folks who, whether you saw that at CVPR or not, there's a blog post that we'll link to in the show notes and you might be able to catch those demos there. All right. Well, Fatih, it was great chatting with you and congrats on so many accepted papers at the conference and looking forward to catching up again soon. Thank you so much, Sam. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. I hope sometimes I stayed very high level, but there are many things in the papers. Kind of, uh, I'm sure people will love the details we provide in the paper. Please let me know if you have any questions also later. Uh, we'll definitely link to those papers in the show notes and encourage folks to reach out if they have any questions. Absolutely. Would love to provide more. Thank you. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.